Do you know people who feel miserable when they eat healthy fruits and vegetables, yogurt or beans? Listen in to find out a possible reason why. You're listening to ReachMD. I'm dietitian Kathy King. Joining me today is dietitian Patsy Katsos, the author of IBS Free at Last. Patsy has a private practice in Portland, Maine. She was an early adopter of the FODMAP approach and has used it since 2008 in treating patients with functional gut disorders, celiac disease, and inflammatory bowel disease. Today we will be discussing FODMAPs and the irritable bowel syndrome. Patsy, welcome to the program. Thank you, Kathy. It's a pleasure to be invited. I would like to ask you, what made you first interested in working with people with irritable bowel syndrome? Well, I've always had a lot of empathy for people with irritable bowel syndrome. I have ulcerative colitis myself, have had it since 1985. So I've always been very interested in any new nutrition therapies for gastrointestinal disorders. Uh, I find working with IBS patients very challenging and uh, I love the working out the puzzle you know because it is such a multifactorial condition um, helping people work out the puzzle of what dietary factors might be triggering their symptoms. What problems do patients usually have with food and eating and what are their symptoms? Well aside from the typical American problems of too much processed food and portions that are too large there are a few particular problems that are unique to people with irritable bowel syndrome. For one thing, you know, the medical profession and dietitians as well have spent the last 50 years suggesting that our IBS patients eat more fiber. But as it turns out, that approach really is not very effective and can't hold a candle to the FODMAP approach. Another problem that's a little bit unique to IBS is the fact that many otherwise healthy foods, such as beans and certain vegetables, whole grains, are high in FODMAP carbohydrates, which we now know are important uh, contributors to symptoms in patients with IBS. So now that we've mentioned FODMAPs enough times, what are they? And uh, explain to us why they're important with IBS. Well, FODMAP is an acronym. It was coined at Monash University, the epicenter of FODMAP research. That's in Australia, by the way. And the acronym stands for fermentable, oligo, dye, and monosaccharides and polyols. And basically it's referring to a group of certain sugars and fibers in the diet that can cause GI symptoms. And they can do this because they have a few things in common. First of all, all of these FODMAP sugars and fibers are rapidly fermentable by gut bacteria. That fermentation process produces a lot of gas and that creates distension in the bowel, and many IBS patients experience that in a very painful way. The other thing that FODMAP carbohydrates have in common is osmotic activity, a high degree of osmotic activity. And that's because they are all very short-chain carbohydrates, and as you know, the smaller a particle is, the more osmotic power it has. So these FODMAPs, if they end up in the large bowel, can pull a lot of fluid into the gut and cause either soft stools or bouts of osmotic diarrhea. Patsy, could you tell us which foods actually contain FODMAPs? Examples of FODMAPs are lactose, which is milk sugar, uh, plentiful in certain milk products, but uh, there are many to choose from that are low in lactose. The next FODMAP is fructose, also known as fruit sugar, 
and present in all fruits naturally. But again, we have an assortment of lower fructose fruits we can offer to our low FODMAP patients. Fructose is also added to the diet in the form of high fructose corn syrup, just outright crystalline fructose, honey, and agave. The next FODMAP is known as polyols or sugar alcohols, specifically mannitol and sorbitol. Other OL sweeteners are sometimes added to sugar-free foods, certain sugar-free foods such as gum or um, certain sugar-free chocolates. But sugar alcohols are naturally occurring in certain fruits and vegetables as well. Sweet corn, cauliflower, and mushrooms would be examples of, of vegetables that would contain mannitol or sorbitol. And then the next big category is referred to as oligosaccharides. That's the O in FODMAP. And oligosaccharides are fibers that are found in in whole grains, found in nuts and seeds in larger portions. Uh, Onions and garlic are huge sources of, of oligosaccharides, and that becomes a real problem for patients in the kitchen because those are such staples. I think that is a pretty good roundup of where FODMAPs are found. So they're very common foods in many instances. Absolutely, and that is one reason that People trying a low FODMAP diet need a lot of help in the kitchen. Wheat, barley, and rye are among the whole grains that are off limits on a low FODMAP diet at the beginning. Between lack of access to wheat products, uh, regular fluid milk, and onions and garlic, it becomes a bit of a challenge in the kitchen. Okay, so it's not an allergy, actually. It's more of an osmolar problem, and it's also a problem with the fact that they are fermented. That's right. So these FODMAP effects do not uh, operate via the immune system at all. They're luminal events, and in fact, they're normal uh, or physiological luminal events to a large degree. It's pretty much the the common state of affairs for fermentation to be occurring in in the large bowel. In fact, it provides a lot of healthy nutrients for the human body, uh, that fermentation process. So we're not trying to get rid of fermentation or stamp it out altogether, but just to keep the, the rapidity of it and the degree at a manageable level so that the patient isn't so symptomatic. So it could be dose-related, like you could eat a little bit? So these FODMAPs act in a cumulative manner. So it's more the total load of FODMAPs from a variety of sources that impact symptoms rather than what, which exact food they came from. And the bigger the portions, the bigger the meal, the greater the load of FODMAPs, and the more symptoms might be expected to result. You're listening to ReachMD. I'm Kathy King, and I'm speaking with dietitian Patsy Katsos. And we're talking about nutrition therapy for IBS and other gut disorders with emphasis on FODMAPs. Patsy, there are some basic nutrition guidelines, surely, that you use with patients that have these kinds of problems. Could you explain them to us? Sure. I mean, we we have some basic hygiene that we we try to start with for patients with IBS. I'm sure you're familiar with these, you know, at least try eating more fiber if you can tolerate it, and if it helps, that's all good. Um, You know, drink more water, get regular exercise. We don't want to skip over these, these very basic things for our patients. But if those routine measures don't help, then it's probably time to consider whether a FODMAP elimination diet might help. At that point, though, the diet becomes very individualized. The whole point of the FODMAP approach is to try to work out a diet that the individual patient can tolerate 
and to get away from these one-size-fits-all type solutions for, for diet, for IBS. So you're basically saying that because there are multiple FODMAPs that you could uh, just have sensitivity to one or two of them instead of the whole group? Yes, that often is the end point of the, the whole process. But at the beginning, we eliminate all the possible uh, suspect foods. That's kind of the routine for any elimination diet. We learn the most if we eliminate them all at the beginning, but only for a short time, two or three weeks perhaps. In the early research with FODMAPs, they were using longer eliminations, up to eight weeks. But in fact, we find and research supports it that within about seven days on the low FODMAP diet, uh, the maximum symptom relief is achieved and it's maintained after that. So really it does not have to be a lengthy elimination period. And it's important for patients to understand that uh, the real learning process occurs when they start reintroducing these FODMAPs to the diet in, in an organized way, uh, one group at a time, so that they can really narrow it down. And they, sometimes they're pretty surprised to find that the foods they thought were the problem are not, and vice versa. What kind of success do the clients have after they've achieved identifying the FODMAPs and staying with the diet for a period of time? Well, uh, the research suggests so far that about 75% of well-selected patients have significant relief of their symptoms with this approach. That's really a significant number, isn't it, compared to yes. the success we've, or lack of success we've had treating IBS with diet in the past. I think that my practice bears that out. You do lose some patients to follow up, but the vast majority of people that I use this approach with do get some relief of their symptoms. I use it with IBS patients. I use it with patients with, who have celiac disease but are still symptomatic even though they're on a 100% gluten-free diet. And I also help patients with uh, inflammatory bowel disease who, again, may be in remission but still symptomatic, we can often get a, you know, an additional degree of symptom improvement with the FODMAP approach. Uh, and even during, a, during flare-ups, although you know, we know that food isn't responsible for those flare-ups necessarily, we can still avoid throwing dietary fuel on the fire. And particularly with replacement fluids, be cautious and about recommending uh, low FODMAP fluids. Could you tell us where can a physician or a patient find a dietitian with FODMAP knowledge and what resources can they go to? Well, this is still an original enough idea and a unique enough term that it is something you actually can Google with some success. Google registered licensed dietitian FODMAP IBS and you'll get a number of suggestions. I do recommend that because this is a complex diet, doable but complex, that you do refer to a licensed healthcare professional and watch out a little bit for enthusiasts of the diet who are putting themselves out there now to work with people who want to try it. If your patient has other health conditions in particular that are nutrition or diet related, the low FODMAP diet is going to need a lot of modification and customization. And registered dietitians are, are experts in doing just that. Could you please summarize then for us what we need to remember about using FODMAPs with IBS? I'd like to emphasize that the low FODMAP diet or the low FODMAP approach is a process and not a list of high and low FODMAP foods. Um, that's a mistake that I see 
being made frequently. Some physicians are becoming interested in FODMAPs and giving a handout off the Internet with a list of high and low FODMAP foods. But that really isn't enough to help the patient get the best outcome with the diet. The patients need to understand the process of elimination followed by reintroduction. And our goal for our patients is always the most varied and nutritious diet that they can tolerate, not a permanently restricted diet. I can see that. So many times when you do restrict a diet, the, all of a sudden the diet is no longer highly nutritious. That's right. It doesn't have to be that way. Actually, there is a full array of nutritious, low FODMAP foods to choose from. As long as the patient doesn't have any other big categories of food that they can't or won't eat, it's absolutely possible to eat a nutritious, low-FODMAP diet. My thanks to our guest, dietitian Patsy Castos. We've been discussing FODMAPs and the irritable bowel syndrome. I'm Kathy King, and we've been listening to ReachMD, and I want to thank Patsy for being here with us today. My pleasure. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring podcasts of this and other series. Thank you for listening.